everyone, and welcome to the Trans Asia and the World podcast. My name is Joshua Tan. I'm here with my colleague, Shakran J. Mall. Hi. And we'll be talking to Professor Justin Z. Hi. Professor Justin Z is currently visiting assistant professor at the Asian American Studies program at Northwestern University. Starting this fall, he will be assistant professor of humanities education at the Singapore Management University in Singapore. His research focuses on Asian American religion, identity, social movements, especially the transnational lives of Cantonese Protestants. More recently, Professor Xi has also been interested in the umbrella movement of Hong Kong and in 2017 edited the book Theological Reflections on the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement. Currently, he's working on a book manuscript titled Religious Politics in Public Space, Grounding Cantonese Protestant Theologies in Secular Civil Societies. Welcome to the show, Professor Z, and thank thanks you. for uh, making the time to talk with us. Yeah, thanks for that kind introduction. Um, I thought we could start off by just a general question. How did you get interested in researching um, Asian American uh, religion, social movements, and the kind of topics that you're interested in? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I was in high school. Um, I took a course in U.S. history, they asked us, um, were there any missing narratives that were not um, covered in the, in, the, in the course? And that course had covered actually quite a bit of um, Asian American history. It was, in, it was in California in the San Francisco mm-hmm. Bay Area. Um, but I always thought, oh, you know, Japanese internment, Chinese rail workers, those were uh, Asians who were oppressed and poor. What about the smart Asians? <laughs> and so, um, so that's when I began a so, sort of small research project on the model minority. I'm also a pastor's kid, uh, grew up in the Chinese evangelical church. And so uh, I always wondered what the history of the Chinese church was. Uh, that was also around the time when I was 16. So I began sort of trying to figure out, was there a career in this? Is there a pathway forward? And that's kind of how it started. Mm-hmm. And what about your uh, research specifically on uh, the current uh, book manuscript that you're working on? So the, the current book manuscript uh, is a revision of my dissertation. Um, it's on Cantonese-speaking Protestants and how they engage civil societies on the Pacific Rim. Uh, the reason why uh, it's not centered, say, on churches, the scale of analysis is on civil societies and on public spheres, uh, is because um, I was told that the church as a space in its politics were quite private. You know, oftentimes we think of religion as a very privatized sort of um, normativity. And we, um, and so I was told, you know, what would be really interesting would be uh, to research how Chinese churches engage the society outside of the church. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm from Vancouver and San Francisco. Um, it would be interesting to get a sense of that, but also to, to compare that trans-Pacifically to mm-hmm. Hong Kong. Uh, and the reason for Hong Kong was because I, the, the group that I was researching were a bunch of Cantonese-speaking Protestants, and Cantonese is the lingua franca of oh, Hong yes. Kong. Uh, and so that's how that started. So what methodologies do you use in your research? Uh, mostly qualitative. Okay. So um, what I did uh, in terms of research design was I designed a question 
uh, what are the imaginations, practices, and networks of Cantonese Protestants as they engage in Pacific Rim civil societies such as Vancouver, San Francisco, and Hong Kong. Um, and I began to assemble key informants. Mm-hmm. So these are informants who are not um, who 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 are not randomized. They're not they're not anonymized. Mm-hmm. Either. They're named informants who are. Uh, people who can speak from sort of a perch of power mm-hmm. uh, within not only churches but also faith-based organizations, mm-hmm. newspapers, politicians, etc., uh, who could comment on how they tri- had tried to mobilize Cantonese-speaking Protestants for various social and political issues in civil society. And from there, I triangulated that with focus groups. And so the focus groups... Um, were to check with people within churches to see whether they had actually been mobilized or whether the stuff that the key informants were saying was just garbage. <laughs> and then uh, from there, I, um, I, I also triangulated that further with an audiovisual archive, the gathering of which is still in progress. Um, yeah, so, it's, uh, so basically it was uh, the key informants that led me to the audiovisual resources. Um, because that was the key to mm-hmm. whether those in the plethora of material that's produced within Cantonese Protestantism, which things are the most important to them. Uh, and then there were also extensive methods in which I contextualized the qualitative findings within quantitative database work. What were some of the, could you talk a little bit about some of the activism and what were they organizing around? Mm. So the uh, initial story, and I think this kind of holds to the very end is, uh, especially in Vancouver and San Francisco, they were against same-sex marriage. Okay. Um, and then ev- what it evolved into was also opposition to transgender rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> the, I made it a point not to m- make the project about that, because mm-hmm. when you make the project about that, then um, the project becomes about sexual politics. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting in and of itself, but the question that I had was, how do these people even conceive of what civil society is? Mm-hmm. Right. Be, so oftentimes, I think we have an understanding of what we mean as scholars by civil society. But I think what's interesting is to go into communities mm-hmm. and to ask them, how do they see the world? Mm-hmm. Right? And in this way, the ethnography doesn't become sort of like seeing these people in a zoo. Like, what yes. are their practices mm-hmm. to create a culture? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These people have something valuable to tell us about how the world is constituted. And the, the, the key, the, the analytical key that I used to make that happen was to ask them, so, wait, what do you even mean by civil society? What do you even mean by public? Mm-hmm. And so from the same-sex marriage stuff, I was able to draw out an understanding of the public sphere as a very ordered, secure place mm-hmm. for them that also comprised other things that they were opposed to, marijuana dispensaries, oh, yes. gambling, mm-hmm. school redistricting. Um, and, uh, and then from there to extrapolate a kind of understanding of what they meant by democracy. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so... Uh, so from something that seemed very right-wing to draw it out to, like, what do they actually mean when they talk about the public? Mm-hmm. So was there something that, that, you, that you discovered that was surprising in some sense or that sort of caught your eye in another? You know, I really did not... Th- 
think that this project would be so secular. Mm, okay. I set out to understand a theologically misunderstood population. Certainly that was how I was trained, too. Um, my doctoral... Well, so my doctoral supervisor was an evangelical Christian, mm-hmm. and I have an evangelical background, uh, even though I'm not uh, within that faith configuration anymore. I'm Eastern Catholic. Um, but the, um, the way that I was in conversation with a number of people was that to talk about them as merely conservative mm. or bigoted uh, missed the picture yeah. mm-hmm. of how their beliefs and their way of theologically interpreting the world um, how that informed their practices. And so I set out to try to figure out was there something Christian about the way that these people were approaching the world? I found that that was overdetermining mm-hmm. because uh, Christianity, just like secularism, is a system. And what do people do with systems? They tend they tend to generally evade, <laughs> disguise, yeah. and avoid uh, the orthodoxies of that system. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was surprised by how, on the one hand, untheological it was for a number of Chinese Christians to justify their public practices in, in the language of security and order had more to do with Victorian British ideologies mm, of space yes. than it had to do even with Chineseness, let alone Christianity. Um, I was surprised by that, but I was also surprised by then how much we could theorize the secular and the post-secular uh, given these findings. And, and how do you think this project, I mean, thinking more broadly about you know, Asian American studies, which mm. now you're teaching in yes. religious studies, I mean, how does this project kind of come into conversation with these two people and other people. Yeah, so the, um, the argument within Asian American studies that I most engage uh, is put forward by the historian Gary Okihiro, where he argues that Asians did not go to America, America went to Asia. Mm-hmm. When you have that framework, you are talking about a field of study that concerns a trans-Pacific social formation as opposed to the identities of people constructed in a sort of vacuum. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes I feel like a number of social science studies, we want to look at how do Chinese people construct Chineseness, and then somehow that sort of engages the political apparatus. Gary Okahira, what happens is that we start with the larger trans-Pacific political apparatus that frames the everyday lives of people. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and that's, in this sense, you could say that it's an even stronger um, commitment to the study of everyday life as a result. Uh, that's my engagement with both uh, Asian American studies and religious studies, that everyday lives are messy. Why are they messy? It's because they... Uh, they engage parts of the social and political apparatus. And what is that social and political apparatus? It tends to be secular. Mm -hmm. It tends to think of politics and economics and sociality 
in non-religious terms. And so in that engagement between everyday life and the social formation, uh, when you're looking at like a religious population, suddenly the possibility of the post-secular emerges. And, and that everyday lives are able to sort of reveal dimensions that the social formation sort of misses. Um, and so that's um, my broader engagement with both of these fields. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your transition between different disciplines and in, in your work? Yeah, that's a good question. So I was, um, so I was a history major. Oh, okay. As an undergraduate. As an undergraduate. So a history major because I wanted to understand the history of the Chinese church, and I was planning to do a history, um, go, go into history for grad school. Um, funny things happen when you meet a girl. <laughs> um, I suddenly became very interested in the history of Chinese Christianity in Vancouver, where the girl was. <laughs> and so, um, and so um, spoke with a bunch of historians about the possibility of staying in Vancouver. None of them really bit at the idea except for the religious historian who was retiring. And so he said, um, I'm retiring, but my tennis partner is in geography. Okay. My tennis partner researches, uh, has a student who researched German churches, and so he's probably interested in the Chinese church. And so I spoke with the tennis partner, <laughs> defected to geography. I uh, did an MA and PhD in geography, went on the job market, uh, and got a postdoc in religious studies okay. at the University of Washington. And I think it's... It's, in, it's at the University of Washington that I really shored up a lot of my convictions about the post-secular, about theology and its relationship with, its very fraught relationship with religious studies. Um, and uh, from there, I got this visiting assistant professorship uh, at Northwestern, where they have me teach Asian American history, social movements, religion, urban geographies, and social and cultural geographies. Um, I think it's in the classroom, especially in engaging with students who ask, who tend to ask the inconvenient questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that uh, a number of these trans-Pacific uh, the like the centrality of the trans-Pacific became very apparent. Is something that I am arguing. It's not just something that I can assume, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the post-secular is something that I'm arguing, not something I can assume. The focus on everyday lives is something that I'm arguing, not something that I can assume. And so uh, teaching students, especially students who are not in Asian American studies, I get a lot of STEM majors, Okay, uh, has been a very helpful journey because it has clarified what things are not obvious. Mm -hmm. yeah. I guess since our podcast is on, on trans-Asian, yeah. can you talk a little bit about your, your argument to the students about the trans-Pacific and what are some of the questions that you yeah, most of, I, w I would say that most students who take Asian American Studies courses are interested in their own identity. Mm -hmm. They want to understand who they are in terms of their family, their family trauma, and sometimes, uh, especially the STEM majors, they're very interested in why their parents forced them to major in STEM and won't <laughs> fund their education otherwise. Uh, and so they come in, you know, looking for something that will give them a name for their pain. Um, and... I sympathize with that, but that, 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 that becomes very navel-gazing, even masturbatory at some points. <laughs> and so we don't 
we don't want our scholarship to be uh, to be masturbatory. We want our scholarship to be generative and life-giving and and geographical. And so, um, so the argument that I that I that I uh, engage them with is maybe uh, maybe you are a person in the world, and maybe the world is worth studying. Mm-hmm. And if you do have this migration narrative, doesn't this mean that there is something about Asia that you need to understand? Doesn't, and, and if you have this legacy of trauma, doesn't that, doesn't that speak to colonial structures mm-hmm. as well as ideological experimentation in Asia that led you, you and your family on this trans-Pacific journey? And isn't it true if you were to be honest, that you've never really assimilated all that much, right? That your family has not only carried over practices, but is still engaged in publics and politics in Asia, Mm, right? By reading news, by by sending in absentee ballots, Mm. by, uh, by engaging friends and family about local politics. All of these things speak to everyday lives being normatively trans-Pacific in Asian mm-hmm. America. And if that's true, then maybe we need to do away with this sort of assimilationist um, framework in which we keep asking, oh, am I more Asian or am I more American? <laughs> yes. Y- yes. <laughs> Identity is not conceptual. Identity is formed from practice, and that practice is trans-Pacific. Mm-hmm. I have one final question, and maybe it relates to kind of engagement in contemporary politics. Because I know you've been quite involved in the Umbrella Movement, sure. the Umbrella Revolution, and Monkeypox, and preceding it yes. in 2014. And you yes. also edited this volume, uh, theological, Revo- theological Reflections on the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement. That's correct. Could you just maybe just talk a little bit about how you got involved and, and some of the latest scholarship that emerged from your involvement and participation in the Umbrella Movement? That's a really good question. Um, so it actually begins quite a bit earlier than the Umbrella Movement. When I was doing research for this project, I honestly thought that it was going to become a, a dissertation on sexual politics. Mm-hmm. Then I went to Hong Kong. And, you know, they, they, they do care about sexual politics, but really they care about democratization. Uh-huh. Um, which meant that it recast the entire frame of the project, even when I thought trans-specifically, because a number of the sexual politics in Vancouver and San Francisco were also about democracy, mm-hmm. and conceptions of what democratic order looks like. Um, from that fieldwork, I met a number of activists that would become uh, quite active in the umbrella movement. Uh, we did not know that there was going to be an umbrella movement at the time. So this is 2012. And then uh, I began writing later on that year, and then well into 2013, when the Occupy Central uh, deliberations were beginning. Occupy Central was a, was a series of deliberations about how democracy would be enacted. It really wasn't about civil disobedience until the very end. 2014, um, because of a number of factors contributing to the failure of Occupy Central, the Umbrella Movement was launched by students who were frustrated 
by how slow the deliberations mm-hmm. were and wanted to rush towards occupation. Uh, be, uh, and, and because of that, one could say that all of Hong Kong was out on the streets trying to understand what Hong Kong meant as home to them. And because of that, uh, the, a number of the research uh, participants from the dissertation uh, were cast into new light because mm. they were doing new things on the streets. Uh, I was able to recruit some of them to contribute book chapters to this oh, book project that mm-hmm. became Theological Reflections on the, Umbrella, on the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement. What I did was I wrote a primer on Hong Kong politics and why that was theological, and that really shored up a number of my uh, convictions when it came to liberation theology. Well, liberation theology was something that we engaged during the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement in Vancouver because we were mentored by an Eastern Catholic Jesuit who, uh, who, for whom the Umbrella Movement was really a spiritual experience. And so he taught us to discern uh, the workings of uh, God and the spirits in everyday protest in relation to structures of power whose oppression could be called demonic. Uh, because of that, um, I was participating. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so, out of both a um, an ecclesial sense of liberation theology and the scholarly work uh, that began with my work on Cantonese Protestants, this new sort of formation. Took shape and that became the book, uh, Theological Reflection of the Umbrella Movement. What I'm working on now is actually an extension of that. Uh, my second project is on the theological afterlives of the Umbrella Movement mm-hmm. in comparison with Occupy movements in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, like, so so that research is actually ongoing um, in terms of uh, how liberation theologies sort of play out into afterlives of failure, government repression, authoritarianism, and depression, frankly. In fact, actually, that brings up another question in my mind about the dynamics of participant observation and how that that changes your um, your positionality as a researcher compared to... um, sort of trying to be an objective researcher. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? You know, I think the sufficient work within the social sciences has really problematized the objectivity of yeah. the researcher. Mm-hmm. What we really mean by the objectivity of the researcher is that the researcher stands from the perspective of the liberal academy. Yes. Mm-hmm. And therefore uses liberal norms mm-hmm. to evaluate communities that are on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so what ethnography quickly becomes is a sort of uh, assessment of whether minority communities have sufficiently assimilated Uh into the liberal order. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is not objective. Mm -hmm. This is deeply ideological. So the critique within Asian American studies Mm -hmm. has been that, um, no, that's not how research Mm -hmm. should be done. Uh, Research 
as I see it, and I, I think as Gary Okahira also sees it, uh, should not come, should be at least very conscious and critical of that liberal bias mm. within the academy. Uh, and what, what, we, what we mean by that liberal bias is that there is an assimilative tendency towards norms of equality uh, that often do not seem to play out within communities of color. Mm-hmm. What Gary Okahiro and others and I um, try to argue is that um, what we are doing when we do fieldwork is we are trying to see how people see the world. And so what is under the microscope? Mm -hmm. It's the world, not the people. Mm -hmm. Right? And so when we talk to people in the communities, they are actually engaged intellectuals who are making sense of Mm -hmm. the world Mm -hmm. and probably contributing knowledges about the world that we do not see in the academy. And so what that does is it feeds back into the academy a critique of our liberal normativities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Right? And I think that that kind of knowledge is better it, it is a better form of service to the people in the society uh, of which the academy is a part mm-hmm. oftentimes we, we think of the academy as separate from the streets no the academy is located on a street mm-hmm. as Cornell West says mm-hmm. uh, and so we need to be faithful to that mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah. Is there anything else that we didn't? No, I think that's that's quite um, well, it was quite a comprehensive interview. Um, I'm really pleased that you guys are doing this podcast. Oh, thank and you. And are um, and are interested in the themes in, in these themes of transition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Thank you for thank you for taking the time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Check out our website transasiapod.history.wisc.edu or you can find us on Twitter at TransAsiaPod. Join us next time to learn more about TransAsia and the world.